reading this morning from 1 Peter 1, 17 through 25. If you addressed as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your soul for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have born a for you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, may it come to us as seed sown upon good soil. Lord, may it birth life and new affections in our hearts. May we be changed as we behold your truth and the Lord Jesus in it. Lord, may we be reshaped by the image that we see. May our hearts long to love him more, to be like him, uh, be like the one who has redeemed us. May we be his instruments and his ambassadors here in this world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As a child, did you ever play the game, Connect the Dots? I think a lot has changed over the years, but I think Connect the Dots is still a common rite of passage in childhood, isn't it? Whether you were born nine years ago or 99 years, at some point in your childhood, someone gave you a piece of paper that had a, a lot of numbered dots on it, and your job was to connect those dots. Uh, dots you connected by drawing lines one to another, and what looked like a chaotic mess at the beginning gradually gave way, as you did it correctly, to a picture of a dog or an octopus or Donald Duck, something like that. A, a picture that was there the whole time, just waiting to be revealed by connecting the dots. In many ways... Peter is playing a game of connect the dots with us in 1 Peter chapter 1. He is connecting the dots for us and forming a picture for us. A picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus and be his disciple. We've seen other New Testament writers do this already. Very same thing. Taking the dot of gospel content. This is what Jesus has done. 
and connecting it with the dot of gospel conduct. Here is how you live now because Jesus did that for you. We've seen it happen time and time again throughout the New Testament. The, the writers are saying, follow me as I connect the dots between gospel content, who Jesus is, what he's done, with your conduct today. How shall you now live? Because these things are true. Let's see how Peter connects these dots for us as we resume our journey through 1 Peter, picking back up with verse 17. Verse 17 says, If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Right off the bat, verse 17, we're struck with a very convenient, conveniently placed reminder of the theme of our series in 1 Peter. We are elect exiles. This time of our stay on earth is just another way of saying the time of our exile. We're here. We're strangers in the world. We're strangers to the world because we are those who have been called out of the world. We're foreigners in our homeland. We're foreigners because we are ambassadors for another king and country. And as ambassadors of another country, here is one way we ought to act. Verse 17, we ought to conduct ourselves in fear during the time of our stay, during the time of our exile. Uh, verse 17, if you have the NIV, the NIV translators say, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Reverent fear. Here's the first of two dots I want to give you this morning. Two dots of gospel conduct. How you should respond because this gospel is true. The first of two dots uh, there's many dots of gospel content here, but I'm going to give you two dots of gospel conduct. The first dot is this, and it's, it's our response in verse 17. It's this, the dot of reverent fear. Reverent fear. Let's see the dot of reverent fear and how it's connected to the gospel. First, we need to ask the question, what is this? What is reverent fear, you may ask? And how does it connect to the other dots of what Jesus has done? I want us to look at reverent fear through a couple of lenses this morning. Lenses that come from the immediate context. The first lens is this, the perspective of being an ambassador. Let's think about what reverent fear looks like from the perspective of being a foreign ambassador. Because the New Testament says that's what we are, right? We are ambassadors for Christ. Have you ever met an ambassador? Anyone? James raised his hand. Yep. Um, Dan raised his hand. Uh, because we lived with Noreen in France, who was 96, decorated war hero from World War II, a spy, we had frequent invitations to the British embassy. And often we'd be there and be like, what are we doing here? having cups of tea with the ambassador. What are, what's going on? Where are we? How do we get into this place? Uh, foreign ambassadors. Do foreign ambassadors conduct themselves with a sense of reverent fear? You bet they do. Ambassadors have to conduct themselves in a very particular way. They are hyper aware that their actions reflect not just on themselves, 
but also on the country they represent. They have to carefully navigate the foreign culture that they find themselves in so as not to give offense. You got, in France, you got to do the right number of kisses on each cheek. Right? You, got to, you got to get that down, not to give offense, not to give a bad impression of their home. There's a level of dignity with which they are expected to conduct themselves as ambassadors because there is a weightiness to their job and to their mission, to their embassy. All these things that inform what reverent fear should look like for ambassadors also inform what reverent fear should look like for us as Christians. As Christians, we are ambassadors for Christ, the greatest of all kings. Through faith in the gospel, Jesus has made us ambassadors of his kingdom. That's one of the reasons why we live as foreigners now in this world. Because we have this weighty position. We have the privilege of holding a position as an ambassador for the Lord Jesus. And because of that, we ought to come to life with a sense of reverent fear. A level of reverent fear. A fear that reflects the importance of our mission. And the greatness of our king. The first perspective I want you to see on verse 17 is through the lens of an ambassador. What does it mean to live in reverent fear? We live as an ambassador. But that's not the only perspective here. There's another perspective in verse 17. It's the fear of a father and the fear of a judge. Look again at verse 17. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth. There is a certain reverential fear that children owe to their father and that petitioners owe to their judge. What does that look like? That informs what kind of fear Peter's talking about. What does that look like? What kind of fear does Peter have in mind? Now, certainly, it's not the kind of fear one would have of a bad, abusive father, right? It's not the kind of fear one would have of a bad, corrupt judge. I'm just, I'm fearful because I'm afraid of what horrible, unjust thing he will do to me. It's not that kind of fear that Peter is talking about because that kind of fear does not reflect the reality of the situation we find ourselves in. We don't have an unjust judge. We don't have an abusive father. In God, we have the best of all possible fathers. And the universe's most fair and impartial judge. The kind of reverent all we owe him should reflect the kind of father and judge God is. And he is good, isn't he? He is a good father. He's a good, just judge. And so the way we conduct ourselves in reverent fear should also be good if we are connecting the dots properly, if we haven't missed these connections, if we haven't swerved from the truth to a misapplication, marring the picture being revealed as we trace it out. A 
servile, slavish fear of an abusive father would be a distortion of the picture, wouldn't it? A distortion of the image of Christ that Peter wants us to reflect. But when we see this verse through the lens of a father and judge, we see this. We see that Peter means for us to live in ways that say to the world, this is the kind of father we have. This is the kind of judge who presides over us. Not an abusive, unjust one who leaves us doubled over in fear and feeling less than human, but we have a good and just one who adds meaning and weightiness to life and leaves us feeling more fully human, more fully ourselves. These gospel realities, God is a good father, he is a perfect judge, should have a real and positive impact on our conduct if we are connecting the dots. When we connect the dots properly, we'll see that we ought to conduct ourselves differently in the world because we represent an alternative kingdom. Because we reflect an all-good father. Because we acknowledge an impartial judge who will set all things right forever. Christian, you should feel the weightiness of all that. Not as a soul-crushing burden, not in a soul-crushing kind of way, but in a life-empowering and giving kind of way. Your smallest interactions now carry eternal potential. Everything from chance conversations to changing diapers, you now engage in as ambassadors of your Father's kingdom. So, have that conversation. Do this work. Complete that task as an ambassador seeking the glory of Christ your King in whatever you're doing. And guess what? All those actions undertaken that way now become eternally meaningful. Jesus said, you give a cup of cold water in my name you will not lose your reward. Every action, even the smallest, has meaning because you are acting as an ambassador of your king. If you don't feel that yet, if you don't feel yet the weightiness of your position, if you don't feel yet the importance of your life, Peter has more dots to connect to reverent fear. He gives you another reason to feel this reverent fear in verse 18. Look at verse 18. Conduct yourselves in fear during your time you stay on earth, knowing, verse 18, that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. If your heart isn't yet convinced that there is a weightiness and importance to your life, Peter says, consider this. Consider 
the cost of your redemption. Consider the cost. Connect the dot of reverential fear to the cost, the great cost of your redemption. Redemption may feel like a foreign concept to you. Maybe perhaps it does to some people. But I'll guarantee you that the idea of redemption is found in nearly every book, nearly every film you've ever encountered. A few movies are even so bold as to put it in the title. The Shawshank Redemption, anyone? That kind of gives you a clue what's going to happen. The Bible tells us of a real life story of redemption in which, believe it or not, you are a character in the story. You're a character. Your life is the one that needed redeeming. That's you. You needed redeeming because whether you realize it or not, you were a slave in bondage. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That was you. That was me. You were a slave to sin. You were held captive to your own desires, indulging yourself, looking for happiness in all the wrong places. You were a willing captive on the road to destruction. But the gospel says God intervened. He intervened. He bought you out of the slave market of sin and delivered you from the consequences of all your rebellion. But all this came at a price, a great price. What was the price God paid for your redemption? Verse 18 tells you what it was not. Verse 18, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. But here's the price, verse 19, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Referring to Jesus as a lamb is meant to remind us of the Old Testament's sacrificial system. The priests would come and place upon the altar the body of a spotless lamb, slain in our place, making atonement for our sin. Why did Jesus need to be perfect, the perfect lamb, without blemish or defect? That is, without sin? Why? It's because the price for our redemption was the price of an exchange, the great exchange. Jesus' obedience to God had to be perfect so that he might give it to us, those whose performance has been far from perfect. The scripture says that God made him, he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. He was perfect, but he took upon himself our sin so that in exchange, we might have his righteousness. The righteousness of Christ might come to us. You see what's happening there? This is the gospel. Jesus takes upon himself our sin. The perfect one, the only innocent one, becomes guilty for us so that we, the guilty, might be counted innocent. We might go free. We might have his righteousness. Peter says, remember. Remember the price, the price paid for your redemption. Remember the price. 
Over the course of my life, I've been in a number of homes which have these triangle-shaped boxes, always prominently displayed, and in these boxes sit a folded American flag. This flag was once draped over the coffin of a loved one who died having served their country. At the funeral, perhaps you've been to one of these, at the funeral, the flag is ceremonially folded and presented to the family. Now, people in most countries respect their flags, but people place a different value on these flags because they are endued with greater meaning. They were bought with a great price. The life of a beloved father or son or daughter. And therefore they are honored, put in the place of honor and treasured in a way that reflects the value of the price that was paid. Christian. You were purchased by an astonishing price. God the Father gave his own son to redeem you. How much must the Father treasure you? How much must he value you that he would give his only son in your place? Peter means for us to feel this, to feel it deeply, and then to act accordingly. Act like you've been redeemed, church. Act like you've been redeemed with precious blood. Act like you are a trophy of God's grace, treasured far more by God than all the flags displayed on all the mantles in all the world. That's you. Here is the one who has, has been given in your place. Let's see him. The price that was paid for our redemption, verses 20 and 21. For he, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Here is the price of your redemption. Jesus, the foreknown, the foreloved one. Jesus, the chosen instrument of God's heart. From before the foundation of the world, from before the universe was made, this chosen instrument of God decided to step into history for our sake, for the sake of the people he is redeeming. Who are those people? Those people are described in verse 21. He's appeared in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. Remember what Peter is doing here. He's connecting the dots for us, showing how gospel content connects with a certain conduct that reflects it. He has given us the content he said, since through the gospel, God is your father, since God is your judge, since you are foreign ambassadors here, 
conduct yourself this way, in reverent fear. Peter has connected the dots in one direction. Now he's going back and tracing the line again, connecting our conduct to even more gospel content. Conduct yourself in reverent fear because of the great price that was paid to redeem you. Because of how much God values you. Because, verse 21, your faith in the resurrected Jesus connects you to God. Verse 21 stands as a reminder to us from Peter of the gospel's exclusivity. Peter says, through him you are believers in God. Through Jesus we are believers in God. Only faith in Jesus connects us to God. Not faith in the prophets or in the saints or in the sacraments. Only faith in Jesus. Through him we are believers in God. The Apostle John said it this way. John chapter 5. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. This is a radically exclusive claim. John is making, Peter is making, the Bible is making. It's a radically exclusive claim, especially for our times. It's radically exclusive to claim this and for modern ears to hear it. Only through Jesus, God's Son, can we be connected to the life of God. That's shockingly exclusive. But Jesus made this claim himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Peter says, it is through him we are believers in God. Peter says in verse 21 that our faith in God is only valid if it comes through Jesus. And in verse 21, that clearly includes a faith in Jesus' glorious resurrection. Through him we are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Christians must believe that they follow a Savior who has done the impossible. He has defeated death, the last great enemy, the enemy we naturally live in dread of, the enemy it's most natural to fear, Christ has defeated. We must believe that as Christians. But when we, when we begin to connect the dots, we will see this. Jesus removes our slavish fear of death and replaces it with a reverent fear, a reverent fear for the one who alone has a grip on life stronger than death, has a grip on us stronger than death ever could. We've spent most of our time thus far seeing how the dots connect back to reverent fear in verse 17, but Peter gives us another dot to connect in verse 22. Look at verse 22. For since in the obedience to the truth you have purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, 
fervently love one another from the heart. Here's the second dot of gospel conduct I want you to see. The dot of fervent love. Fervent love. We've already seen the dot of reverent fear. Now here is fervent love. What bit of gospel conduct does Peter call us to see and embrace in verse 22? You see it, it's clear. He calls us to embrace love. To love deeply. Love one another fervently. From the heart. Why? Do you see it? Can you connect the dots back to the gospel content? Why? Love fervently. Why? Because you believe the gospel truth of the previous verse. You believe that God loves you fervently from the heart. So much so that he gave his perfect son to redeem you. You've been purchased with something precious. The very blood of God access. The church was purchased with the very blood of God. Embracing that truth has a purifying effect upon your heart as you begin to connect the dots. And guess what? In your joy over God's great love for you, what do you do? You begin to love others, don't you? Believing the gospel, that God loved you while you were his enemy, you begin to do what previously felt impossible. You begin to love your enemies because God loved you when you were his enemy because you believe that's exactly what God has done for you. Peter connects the dots of fervent love back to the fervent love that God had for us in redeeming us. And Peter connects this new love in our hearts to another new gospel reality. Look at verse 23. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. Love in a new way, Christian. Love in a new way because the gospel makes you a new person. You have been born again a second time. You're new. Your love before may have been a temporary, conditional, wishy-washy kind of thing. But now you've been born again by an enduring, imperishable seed. The life of God has entered into the soul of man with new capacities for love, with new motivations to love. These new capacities and motivations to love kind of make becoming a Christian sound like a superhero origin story. It's kind of like you've been bitten by that radioactive spider, and now you have new powers, new capacities for love. It's not quite like that. You're not a superhero. In most ways, you're far from it, right? But I do think that some superhero stories speak better than they know, reflecting some great realities without knowing it. One thing you'll notice with superheroes is that their stories are always a journey. It's always a journey, a journey to understand what's happened to them, how to use their powers, how to shoulder the responsibilities now placed on them with, with, uh, what, with great what? With great power, comes great responsibility. New Christian. Maybe you're here and you're a new Christian. 
guess what? It'll be the same for you. You have before you a whole life journey of growing. And even those who journey on the farthest in their new capacities for love and reverent fear, it'll be but a small foretaste of what is to come. Our capacities now will only be a shadow of what they will be resurrected and glorified, like Jesus in verse 21. So, if our story has any resemblance to a superhero origin story, what is our radioactive spider bite? What's the thing that changes us and begins the journey for us? Peter tells us it's an encounter with the living and enduring word of God. Look at verse 23. You've been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Our spider bite is a piercing, not of the skin, but of the heart. It's a piercing of the heart that comes from God's word, an encounter with God's word. It's a moment of piercing joy when we encounter God in his word, in the good news about Jesus, and suddenly realize it is all true. It is all true, and it's true for me. I have a place in this story. It's true for me. It's true for you. Our radioactive spider bite is when we encounter God in his word. And God's spirit, who inspired the word, turns the lights on in our, in our minds and pierces our heart with the truth. Peter uses another image here. He says, the truth of the word is like a seed. Seed that is sown. And the Spirit is the one who causes the seed to take root and grow in the heart. In response to hearing the good news about God's Son, God's Spirit takes a spark of faith, ignites that spark of faith in our hearts, and fans it into flames. I pray, it's, it's my prayer, that everyone here has had this kind of heart's response to God's word. I pray that's you. But if you're here this morning and you haven't yet, let me warn you, like I've warned others, so that you're not caught off guard, a moment of piercing joy where you encounter God's word and believe it's all true can quickly be followed by an oh no realization. Oh no, this changes everything for me. This touches every corner of my life. That realization comes for some quicker than others because you are connecting the dots. Believing this gospel content does require a response from me. It requires a changed life. It requires new actions, new conduct. Connecting what you're now believing that God has done for you with how you now ought to live for him can feel overwhelming 
it can feel daunting because it is a journey. It is a whole life journey, a lifelong journey where you never outgrow this game of connecting the dots. Never outgrow it. But it's not a journey that you were meant to walk alone. Take comfort. It's not a journey you're meant to walk alone. It's not one you are meant to be all by yourself. Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And what's more, I give you a family. I give you the church, a family who speaks my living and enduring word into your life. This is what's happening right now. Right now, as you sit here, as, as we're here together, right now, verse 25 is happening. And this is the word which was preached to you. Right now, the word that brings life is in your ears. Right now, the word that pierces like a sword is aimed at your heart. Don't harden your heart in response. But open it. Open and believe it. Embrace Christ. Believe these words about Jesus are true. That they are life. Let's all connect the dots this morning. Let's all connect the dots. And behold the picture of a Christ-like life that emerges. For... All flesh is like grass, and all of its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Let's pray. Father, as the word is in our ears, may it also pierce our hearts. May we not respond with a yawn this morning, with apathy, but may we respond with fresh faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. May our hearts intentionally reach out and embrace a king who has paid the ultimate price for us. We have been purchased with precious blood. So may we conduct ourselves with reverent fear as ambassadors for Christ in this world. May we love fervently from the heart as we have been loved. May a resolve grow in us to connect the dots continually between what Jesus has done and how we now are to live. May this be our response this morning as we, we stand and sing the song of response. May our hearts be in the words. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.